You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Clips from this presentation are from C-SPAN and One Oral History from the Daniel K. Inouye Institute. And representatives, I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at the solicitation of Japan was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. My fellow Americans, Supreme Allied Commander General MacArthur and Allied representatives on the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay. The thoughts and hopes of all America, indeed of all the civilized world, are centered tonight on the battleship Missouri. There on that small piece of American soil Anchored in Tokyo Harbor, the Japanese have just officially laid down their arms. They have signed terms of unconditional surrender. Four years ago, the thoughts and fears of a whole civilized world were centered on another piece of American soil, Pearl Harbor. The mighty threat to civilization which began there is now laid at rest. It was a long road to Tokyo and a bloody one. 
We shall not forget Pearl Harbor. Let me say a special word to all the young Americans and the young people who were involved in my campaign. You have been, you have been a constant source of inspiration for Elizabeth and myself. But it, and, it, and I might, I might add. You're not going to get that tax cut if you don't be quiet. Yeah. So. <clears throat> and I would say to the young people and all the others involved, it's a lot more fun winning. It hurts to lose an election, but stay involved and keep fighting the good fight. Because... Because you are the ones who will make the 21st century the next American century. World War II was the main event of the entire 20th century. It had the most traumatic and important effect on an entire generation of people, including 10 presidents, the decision makers of the war, Franklin Roosevelt, Harry Truman, and Dwight Eisenhower, and then the generation who fought it, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, and George H.W. Bush. There were countless other leaders throughout America, including Strom Thurmond, Daniel Inouye, and Bob Dole, whose concession speech uh, we just listened to. I did not realize it at the time, as one of those young people who was helping on that campaign, that I was actually watching the end of one of the most remarkable and important generational runs in the history of mankind. It was the moment the last of that generation would stand at the center of the political stage. Though there still would be members of that generation in government, Dan Inouye would serve until 2012, and New Jersey's Frank Lautenberg until June of 2013. And finally, Representatives John Dingell of Michigan and Ralph Hall of Texas would stay until 2014. But really, it was 1996 when this generation left this, the center stage of American politics. And what you began to see was more extreme politics, more divisive politics that has grown for the last 24 years. As the U.S. House of Representatives historian Matthew Wisniewski pointed out in an NPR interview, the House has always been a partisan place. From all its beginning, it's been partisan. But that period from the late 1940s to the early 1970s, when that World War II group hits their peak, is in a lot of ways the exception to the rule when it comes to bipartisanship. Wazineski also says the sheer experience of World War II brought a moderating influence to their politics. You see, these men saw horrifying things, whether it be in Europe, on the battlefield, or around and across the South Pacific. Uh, it's amazing uh, how hard and difficult it was to tell that those who had starved to death on the ground were they living or dead. 
as I said, though, the doctor did say were a good many, uh, but uh, it, it, I never saw such a sight in my life, and I couldn't imagine anybody could be so cruel to people as to treat them like that. Now, of course, in some other concentration camps over there, they uh, they gassed them to death, and uh, and 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 that's that's when. Uh, it's very clear that that was the, the only source of killing the people that those. This particular camp, Buchenwald, as I stated, is a combination of the way they killed them there. And um, so, unless the people of, of the United States could actually see what went on there, they couldn't imagine uh, the dread to humanity that occurred in those places. Senator, before you got to Buchenwald, had, how, how did you hear about it? Did you hear about it in the United States, or, or when uh, you got to Europe? No, no, I I, I had heard uh, maybe uh, probably when I first got over there mainly. When did you get over there first? Well, I landed on D-Day with the 82nd Airborne Division in Normandy, mm -hmm. and um, and then we took that part of the country there in France, and then worked on our way on through St. Louis to Paris. We camped on the Peace Grounds as we went through Paris. And then we went on uh, into Belgium. Of course, when we got in Belgium, that's when the Battle of the Bulge occurred. And we were spar Belgium. We had to drop back to Liege, Belgium. And going back to the Germans were dropping uh, those bombs down on the uh, people going back. And several, just a couple of calls for me, a bomb dropped and killed a lot of people. And just across the street in Liege, uh, uh, from one side to the other street, a bomb dropped there. And so I'm pretty lucky, I think. Yeah. I didn't get killed. At that time, it was extremely cold. Ice, I guess, looked like it's four to six feet thick, maybe. Extremely cold. But anyway, that uh, that was a terrible fight, that Battle of the Bulge. But we, uh, we stopped them and... And uh, and were able to succeed and turn the situation around. Then then we went back through uh, Belgium, went on, and Aachen uh, was one of the cities that, that some of them just churches destroyed and other things. That city was about eighty five percent destroyed, and uh, our pilots tried not to destroy churches, or if they could. And uh, they had specific instructions about that. But we went from there on one place to the other and finally crossed the Rhine River. The bridge had been blown up just before we got there, and we crossed on the pontoon bridge and then went from there on into Germany. And uh, one city after the other on, on into Germany as far as we could go. And uh, then we got to um, uh, near Berlin, and 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 sat on banks of the river while the Russians took it. I don't know why in the world was ever given to let the Russians uh, take Berlin. The Germans, I think, knew they're going to lose their hope, and we'd take because they hated the Russians so, and and they knew they'd be punished a lot more, and a lot more of them would be killed if the Russians took it. But that was always that General Eisenhower gave. Now, whether he made that decision or whether the president made that decision, I don't know. But anyway, 
that's what happened. And uh, I know I, we were all just itching to take Berlin because we had fought all the way through from D-Day on. And, and, and we were disappointed that we didn't have the honor of taking Berlin. And then you went on from Berlin to Buchenwald? Yes, right. And when you got to Buchenwald, had anybody been there? Was the 82nd Airborne the first people in? No, the 82nd Airborne had gone on on another assignment. So you were... And and I remained with the the 1st Army. I see. And then the 1st Army came to Buchenwald. That's right, 1st Army. And you liberated the camp? camp. Well, uh, we uh, we got there right after it was liberated. I see. Uh, Some troops ahead of us had just liberated it. I see. And, uh, and and that's when I witnessed all these things I'm telling you about. It was, um, I, I just can't imagine how any person could be so inhuman as to do to those people what I saw. It doesn't matter who the people were, uh, where they were from, how one person could be so inhuman as to treat another human such a way. But it is just outrageous. Uh, but um, that must have been Hitler's orders that he passed down, and he was destroying certain people, people who disagreed with him, and then the Jewish people, of course. Uh, and why he did that is various reasons assigned. But uh, but he was out to get them and destroy thousands of them, thousands and thousands. And um, and. Uh, we were so disappointed just to actually see what we did see and the final conditions as it were. Did you have an opportunity to go to any other camps, any other concentration camps? No, that's the only uh, concentration camp I had a chance to go to. I, of course, I heard about these others, and they were mostly gassed, I think. And uh, this was somewhat a miscellaneous group there near Leipzig at Buchenwald. Uh, and some of the other camps were understood were most of the Jewish people and men, women, and children. They'd make them strip, I was told, and and uh, someone said they saved their clothes and made them strip, and then they gassed them to death. At Buchenwald, did you have an opportunity to speak with any of the survivors or, or have any contact with any of the survivors? Well, actually, the survivors who did survive were lying on the ground and so weak they couldn't talk. In other words, you couldn't hardly tell whether they living or dead. The doctors had a difficult time even telling how they were living or dead, but they, they could detect a few of them that were living, and, and of course they were taken and treated and helped in every way we could. Did you remain there for some time? No, we, we didn't remain there too long. We remained long enough to survey the situation and um, and determine that it was all stabilized then. And and, uh, and then others came in and took over the actual work of removing the bodies. And, um, and then the medical corps still trying to tell who's dead or alive. Those who pile up, as I said, pile up like cordwood, red, high, wall of people, some living, Barely living, others dead. Is there anything else about your experience at Buchenwald that you think you would want to? I don't think there's anything else I could tell you. It's just a sight of course you'd never forget. It's a 
see humans treated like they were. Human beings, men, women, children, just uh, being starved to death or killed with a mallet or shot trying to escape over a fence. Do you have any idea how many people were, were left there when you, by the time you got there? Well, they disposed of They told me at intervals they disposed of them uh, as they died. When we got there, this particular uh, pile of people, as I guess you'd call it, like a pile of cold wood, uh, there must have been several hundred there at that time, right at the particular place we saw. And some of them dead, some of them alive. Some dead, some alive. Hard to tell what, whether dead or alive. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much, Senator Thurman. You're welcome. really appreciate your doing I'm glad to talk to you. And it's real valuable. Uh, thank you very real much. Real valuable. Thank you. Thank you. Randall Wallace, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far, and I want to invite you to come over to Amazon and take a look at our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, plus some other lessons and a few opinions from my time in politics. It's a book that I put out in December of last year, 2019. It has a lot of ideas based on our campaign for Congress in 2012 about how to bring the country together, some ideas and programs and policy initiatives that really could probably be embraced by anyone. I'd also like to invite you to come over to Facebook to my page, The Silent Majority. It's free to join, and this way you can keep up with different things that we will be doing in 2021 and beyond. And for now, I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the generation who grew up in the Great Depression and fought World War II and then led us through the American century. I'm Randall Wallace, and now let's get back to the show. He was a man who, uh, as we all know, rarely called attention to himself, but who lived a remarkable American life uh, filled with dignity and grace of the true hero that he was. Only 17 when he heard the sirens over Honolulu and saw the gray planes flying overhead. At the time, he dreamed of being a surgeon. A few years later, a medic would be taking care of him after his heroic actions in the Italian mountains, for which, for, for which he would one day receive our nation's most prestigious award for military valor. Dan Inouye's dream of being a surgeon was not realized, but there were other things in store. Instead, he became a member of one of the most decorated U.S. military units in American history and one of our nation's longest serving and finest senators. An iconic political figure of his beloved Hawaii and the only original member of a congressional delegation still serving in Congress, he was a man who had every reason to call attention to himself, but who never did. 
He was the kind of man, in short, that America has always been grateful to have, especially in her darkest hours. Men who lead by example and who expect nothing in return. Senator Dan Inouye, who would go on to be the second serving senator in the history of the Republic, was also a Medal of Honor winner. And he talked about how being in a war can change a man. Like your colleague, Senator Dan Akaka and uh, former Congressman and Transportation Secretary Norm Mineta, World War II was an important event in their lives and uh, in your life as well. You served in the most highly decorated unit in the history of the United States Army and received the Bronze Star, Distinguished Service Cross, and the Medal of Honor. Can you tell us what you learned from that experience and, and how did that experience impact your public career? Well, there are certain things that haunt me, even to this day, and that is uh, the realization that war can change a person's character and personality. That uh, one might be content in saying, I'm a good person. Now, for example, one week before I got into the service, put on my uniform, I was a Sunday school teacher and I sang in a choir. And my mother was a devout, devout Methodist, Women's Christian Temperance Union. You know, they don't get any more devout than that. And the whole family was that way. And then after training and going overseas, I recall killing the first German. And the thing that haunts me is that I was jubilant. I was proud. And the fellows around me patted me on the back and said, terrific, Dad, terrific. Now, I just killed a human being. And to think that uh, war can change a person so drastically has been with me all the time. So when it comes to going into war, I am very cautious here. For example, I voted against giving the president the authorization to make a preemptive strike on Iraq because I didn't think it was a war that was fully justified and it was not a war that we were prepared for. So it's uh, haunted me throughout my life. Senator Inouye paid an enormous price for war, but it made him throughout the rest of his life very leery of going headfirst into war. As he said in a speech commemorating Pearl Harbor, an event that may surprise you that he was also a witness to. Mr. President, today is December the 7th, 2011. Seven years ago, something happened in Pearl Harbor. I shall never forget that day because it was a Sunday. And like many Americans, I was preparing to go to church. I was putting on my necktie and having a good time listening to delightful Hawaiian music. Suddenly, at about this time, 7.55, the disc jockey in charge of that program began screaming, yelling into the mic, 
And he was saying, the Japanese are bombing Pearl Harbor. We fought in Italy and France. We started off the war with about 6,000 men. At the end, over 12,000 had gone through the ranks. So you can imagine the casualty rates. Here's the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 70 years ago. Began a period of my life when I became an adult. And I hope that a good American. It is something that I will never forget. It changed my life forever. If December the 7th is going to teach us anything, it should be that we must remain vigilant at all times. Not just to avoid war, but vigilant among ourselves so that we would not use this as a justification to set aside our most honored document, the Constitution. I hope it will never happen again. His close friend and future Senator Ted Stevens, who would fly cargo planes during the war over the Himalayas and into China, which was a very dangerous route, remembered the shock of that day, December 7th, and also its effects on his generation, as they had, had gone for several years, actually, anticipating the coming world war. Uh, we, we all felt that the time was going to come that we'd be involved in the war, but we fully anticipated it would be in Europe. Uh, the shock of having it come to our country uh, across the Pacific, I think, was uh, a really the intense shock for our generation. And particularly those of us who lived on the coast, uh, uh, you know, you, if, 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 I remember having nightmares of, uh, of, of Japanese coming ashore on our beach and things like that. It was, it was something that was on your mind constantly that uh, we, we were going to go to war. Uh, but we never really, and, and th those are nightmares. We never anticipated living through a nightmare. So you meant you had nightmares before Pearl Harbor actually yeah, occurred? Yeah. We knew we were going to war. All of us knew we were going to go to war. The draft had been placed in, in effect. There was no question about it. We were going one way or the other. But this obviously this solidified that. Yes. Uh, people lived everywhere in the country had had absolute impact from Pearl Harbor. And there was no question about it. We were not only going to go to war with the Japanese, we were going to go to war in Europe. And, and a total world war is something that really, sort of, as I said, it sinks into your soul, the commitment you have to make to win that war. Pearl Harbor was the shock for a generation, a generation that had already grown up in the economic depression. This war's impact cannot be overstated. It tempered these men and made them steer away from the passions of excess, realizing that, that that is how you end up in a war in the first place, and is often how you stop progress. They also never forgot a sense that the secret to their national success, how we won the war to start with, was that we were united. No matter our different positions or opinions or philosophies, we were Americans first. Uh, in your lifetime since then, well, in the most important ways. Before December the 7th, America was a good nation. 
trying his best to keep with keep up with the rest of the world. After World War II, we became a super nation. For one reason, the people were together. And when you consider that just about every family was somehow involved, either a son or father or an uncle or cousin or auntie. And when you look back, little kids were collecting pennies, copper wirings. Juvenile kids were doing victory gardens. We were all involved. Not just the guy who was carrying the gun. And that makes a big difference. Today, 1% of the population is involved. They're in a camp. So every chance I have, I go to these camps and thank them for their service. Anyone who's willing to stand in harm's way for me, I'd do anything for him. It was being united that helped that generation create the American century. Dan, Dan Inouye was the single member of this group to win a Medal of Honor. And his story is truly an amazing one. Let's get back to Italy then. You got moved after your commission. Uh, you moved back into northwestern Italy. Uh, hooked up with the 92nd. That's right. Old African American yep. division, and uh, you were—they were engaged, and you were too then with your 442nd in the well, offensive. Or we came to the the German line there, which had been not moving at all for about six months. We we're gone from Italy for about six months, and they wanted us to break that line because. We were close to the end of the war. That was the most difficult decision to follow. Two weeks before my injury, all the officers were called in. We were sworn to secrecy. And I, well, what do we do? Put up our hands, you know? Who addressed you? Who, who called you company in? commander. Company commander. Each company had done this. And our company commander was from Texas. He looked at us, he says, the war's over. They're negotiating now. But you don't tell your men. We'll keep on pushing, otherwise they might delay this. It's not easy, knowing that it's over. You know, you want to dig the hole deeper. Right. But if you did that, the war would last longer. And you had an objective there. Was it Mount uh, Valvadere? Uh, some objective uh, that you had to take, uh, and the 442nd was given. How did that come about that your that, regiment That got mountain there? was at the opening of the Poor Valley. So for the movement of troops and supplies, that became an important valley. So the 442 got the assignment to occupy that area. And that morning was April 21st, 45, which was about four days before ceasefire. 
Something happened. I lost my field jacket, for example. Something I've never done before. I misplaced it. And so the, the chief sergeant of the company lent me his, which was a special one, a German one, with camouflage on one side and white on the other. So I, I think I stood out, which was a big mistake. And we took one, knocked out a position, knocked out another one. In the process, I got wounded, got shot through the stomach. But it was a funny thing. There's no pain. When you were shot through the stomach, no pain? Yeah, I got a hole here coming out of the back. And my messenger was right behind me with the radio. So there's uh, blood is coming out. So I checked, there was a little hole there. But I, yeah, I didn't feel bad, so we just continued. Now you've already taken out one machine gun at this point? Uh, we've taken out one, yeah. And you got hit in the stomach? Yeah. Then uh, we, a couple of more hours, came across three machine guns. How much more time? About two hours later. You went for two hours with a bullet through in your stomach? But it came out. came out, yeah, yeah. but still. <laughs> you were bleeding. So there were three more left, and I figured I'll do, do what I can. What was your weapon that you were using? A noisy one, Thompson submachine gun. It's not accurate, but it makes a lot of noise and scares the hell out of people, you know. <laughs> I had a whole bag of grenades, and I was just lucky. And you kept uh, moving forward with your Tommy gun, and uh, you were leading, going I, after the I was, I knocked out. Guns. I knocked out two more nests. And then the third one shot a rifle grenade, hit my elbow, that was it. Then I got hit in the leg and I couldn't move. All of them happened, but after you got hit, uh, you still were able to throw one more grenade that you were getting ready to throw? How did that happen? Like, the grenade was in my right hand. So I was looking around for it, you know, what if it exploded? was still in my fist. I took it out. Somebody was looking after me because it was accurate. Right in his pocket. <laughs> Boom. But there's a footnote to all of this that I've never discussed up until now. The men I went into combat with that day were not Germans. They were the Bersaliari Italians. As you may recall, early on the Italian Navy, Air Force, and the Army surrendered. One unit did not surrender. And their, their attitude was, we will surrender if the king tells us to surrender. And the king ain't there because Mussolini is in charge. And they fought, fought like hell. They were great soldiers. None of them surrendered. They were either wounded or killed. I'm sorry to say. So after your arm was shot and you threw that other grenade and, and you were hit and you were, you know, rolling down the hill, you said, um, and you came to down there or you were still oh, conscious? I crawled up and 
me because of prayer and directed the troops. Wow. And your arm was just still Dang, hanging dangling. Yeah. Wow. I told the medic to cut it off. He said, oh, no, no. <laughs> well, what happened then? I mean, just your training took over, your instincts just... Uh... It's training and instinct because when I think back, I can't believe I did those things. Uh, I must have been half crazy. <laughs> I'm sure, that's what the... would a sane guy do? You know? Well, it's in the heat of combat. Sometimes you do things, I guess. Uh... But the thing that has always haunted me, it took nine hours to evacuate me. See, I, we began the battle in the morning. The battle ended about one o'clock, and I stayed there to place the men in their places to dig their foxholes, because they always have a counterattack. And then when I felt the time was ready, we went down. Nine hours from three to midnight. Wow. And when I got there, there was a tent about three times the size of this room with all the stretchers lined up. It's field hospital. Yeah. And the doctors, a team of doctors would go up and down the line and they're mumbling something. That means send them to the operating room. This one is going to die. This one can wait. So I'm, I'm watching this operation, and I can tell what they are saying. When they came to me, the verdict was, God bless you. A couple of minutes later, the chaplain came up. And the chaplain came up, and you know I'm on the floor. So he gets on his knee, he looks at me, he says, Son, God loves you. I said, yeah, I love God too, but I'm not ready to see him. He looked at me, he said, you're serious? I said, absolutely. I'm not ready to go. And so they... And he called back the doctors. The doctors came back, checked me out, set them in. So I went in. My first surgical procedure was done without anesthesia. They were afraid if they gave me anesthetic, I would pass on. Not come back up again. And uh, as far as the doctors were concerned, you won't feel anything. I can tell you I felt something. <laughs> well, the uh, and that's where you had the transfusions. And at that field hospital, or was it? Uh... At the field hospital. 17 transfusions. 17 transfusions from the African-American soldiers. Saved your life. That's right. African-American blood saved my life. That's a great, great, great story. Now, you, uh, there's one thing you left out that uh, I think uh, you said once before the, before the 21st that uh, when you first attacked this uh, German line that you all had to, you, uh, your regiment was given the responsibility of scaling a cliff at nighttime to oh, oh, oh. Uh, 
that was before before the. the this was about a week before week my before. last battle. Tell tell me about that. How well, the regimental commander knew his business, and said the Germans won't expect us to climb this steep cliff. Then we were all told very seriously, if you should miss your foothold and fall, don't scream. Two of the fellows fell. Doom, doom, doom. That's all you hear. No screams. But when we got up there, we were there when the Germans were lining up for breakfast. And what time at night did you start? About ten. 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 So you were climbing that cliff in for the about six hours. For six hours. And then they were there, and I'm sad to tell you, but we just about wiped out that company. And that enabled the breakthrough of Milan. We did it. The, the commander of 92nd said, we hope you can do this in two weeks. Our company commander says, uh, would it be all right if we did it in six hours? Well, that's the only way to do it. Dan, in a way, came home from the war, like many of his generation, believing in this country and believing that in over our 200 years, we were always a country moving in the right direction together, that eventually we would always be moving forward. I didn't expect this, but uh, we got home, we're all heroes. You know, they had parades and all these things. And um, here I was young, but we had the GI Bill. And as a result, I got a law degree. And here I am. So the GI Bill itself was uh, created an educational renaissance. That's the first time any country had ever done that. And that was the best investment they ever made. 20% of America participated in that. And when you Look at how we operate this government. December 7th, I was an enemy alien. Today, I'm president pro tem of the Senate. We're sitting in the office. The line of succession, vice president, speaker, president pro tem. I'm third in line to succeed the president. They made me chairman of the Appropriations Committee. You know, what other nation would ever do that? Quite an amazing story from a 17-year-old Japanese-American that attacked Pearl Harbor to where you are today. What other country would have? No place else. No place else. And there were advances in uh, civil rights and women's rights yep. as a result of the war, wouldn't you say? I'm convinced that it takes a little while, it takes some blood, some sacrifice, but this country moves forward. What would you say to America's youth today, based on your experience? You are very fortunate. You live in a great country. We make mistakes, 
but this country acknowledges mistakes. It's not easy, but we do it. We also have opportunities. Now, you would look at me and you say, no, you'll never be majority leader or chairman of the Appropriations Committee. But here I am. Are you optimistic about the future? Very. Sure, these times, I've gone through, well, since 1959, I've seen the ups and downs of this Congress. But we always move forward. And we don't repeat this every day. But there are 33 words that are very sacred to all of us. We do the repetition a little differently, but we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's operational, believe me. Doesn't get any better than that. And if it weren't for that, I won't be sitting here. Well, Senator, it's been the most engaging hour, as it always is with you, but uh, to hear this story from you, and uh, a story that will live on for many generations, it's uh, an honor uh, for me. So thank you very, very much. Thank you. You're a great American. Next time on Bridging the Political Gap, two men do battle for the 1988 Republican nomination. Came well and meet him in the South. And Senator Dole, is there anything you'd like to say to the Vice President? Yeah, stop lying about my record. But the two men end up friends, and one becomes the leader in the Senate for the other. I, I don't know how to say it other than absolutely essential. And finally, the generation that built the American century leaves the stage. So the Bible tells us to everything there is a season. And I think my season in the Senate is about to come to an end. On the conclusion of Bridging the Political Gap.
thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now.